0: Please pray with me. Father, this season, as we remember that you sent your son to us, and as we remember that he is coming again, I pray that you would stir our hearts with eagerness and hope. Lord, let us see beyond this day. Let us see into the glory of what you are doing. And Lord, bring us excitement and eagerness for what you will do. Amen. Amen. Matthew 24 is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. I honestly think it rivals any of the difficult prophecies in Zechariah or Daniel or Revelation. It's hard to figure out. Jesus seems in this chapter to be referring to two things, and sometimes it's difficult to know which one he's actually talking about On the one hand, the chapter actually begins, and you don't have this part in your order of service. The chapter begins with something we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. A prophecy of the destruction of the temple. But at some point in the chapter, he seems to shift his focus from the prophecy about the destruction of the temple to the end times, when he will return. The general consensus, and I say that with, like, super caveat air quotes around it, the general consensus, there is no consensus on this chapter. But as close as you can get to a general consensus is, is that the turn from the focus on the destruction of the temple to his return at the end of his ages, that turn occurs in verse 36. Look at that verse in your order of service. In the midst of what he's talking about, he says, "But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. There seems to be a shift in focus here from the prophecy about the destruction of the temple to the end times, his return. It seems that prior to that, he was referring to all the things that happened before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And after that, he shifted our focus to the end of all things. The problem with that, though, is that if you look at verses 29 through 31, A lot of people have real difficulty imagining that this refers to anything other than the end of time. The Lord appearing in the sky, gathering the elect from the end of the earth. You go, that seems to be a part of the latter part of this prophecy. It's like the two halves of the prophecy are bleeding into one another, overlapping. And so even though there's a division in the middle where the focus shifts, some of the focus of the second half seems to show up in the first half and vice versa. This is actually what makes this chapter so difficult. If I can muddy the waters a tiny bit more, you're perhaps like, why are you muddying the waters? Could you clarify them for us? If I could muddy the waters a tiny bit more. In the original language, there's actually two different words used for the coming of the Son of Man. Two words that seem to have different focuses, and in English, it all gets muddied because of the fact that the same word is used, the word coming. So look at verse 30, the second half of it. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And we say that refers to the second coming, right? Sure seems to. Problem problem is, is the word coming there is a quotation from Daniel 7. And when you go back to Daniel 7, this is not about the return of the Son of Man at all. It's about coming into the kingdom of heaven, not coming down to earth. We're going to call that word the enthronement coming. In other words, this verse refers not to him coming back, but him going coming into heaven to be crowned, to be given glory in dominion and power. You look at verse 39. It says at the end of verse 39, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, and this is a different word used, one that pretty much every scholar believes refers to the second coming. This, at this point, you go, great. So before verse 36, that hinge point, the word coming refers to coming into heaven to be crowned, and after verse 36, that coming refers to coming back. Some of y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy for bringing any of this up. The problem is, is that the distinction is not clear and fast. It seems on the one hand to support and help this idea that there's a turn in the middle. But the problem is, and this is actually not in your order of service. In verse 27, before that hinge point, Jesus uses the wrong word for coming. He uses the return at the end of all things coming. And after verse 36... He also uses the other word, the enthronement word for coving. Y'all are looking at me like, this is crazy. Stephen's crazy. My point of all this is that the prophecy can't be sorted out and pulled apart and neatly parceled. Jesus has two things in view, and there's a general first half that refers to one and a second half that refers to the other. But the two are constantly bleeding into each other, overlapping, affecting each other. In fact, perhaps a better way of actually summing it up is to say that it's just one big prophecy that has two different reference points. On the one hand, Jesus is referring to his enthronement and the destruction of the temple. And in the exact same prophecy, he's referring to returning to his coming again at the end of the ages. One prophecy with two reference points. That actually puts this chapter in line with lots of Jewish prophecy. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. That puts this chapter in line with a lot of Jewish prophecy. Because lots of Jewish prophecy has multiple reference points. Where the same prophecy is speaking to multiple moments in history and to multiple events. And we're actually going to look at one of those, Isaiah 2, at the tail end of this service. The same prophecy referring to multiple things. By the way, we read Matthew 24 in Advent because of this second reference point, the return of Jesus. That's really the major theme of Advent, the return of Jesus. Now, some of y'all have probably heard that a thousand times, and you're like, ho-hum, yeah, Advent's about the return of Jesus. But for others of y'all, this may be something that you've not heard or something that you've heard and yet wanted to say, hold up, I thought Advent was about Christmas. Are you telling me that when I put a Christmas tree up, it's about the return of Jesus? What's wrong with that? Give me a second to explain. Advent is like Jewish prophecy. It's got multiple reference points. I told you I was going somewhere with that. We'll keep coming back to that. Advent is like Jewish prophecy. It's got multiple reference points. The first reference point, Advent's a period of preparation and waiting so that we can prepare rightly to celebrate the joy of Jesus' first coming. That's its first reference point. But the second reference point in Advent is that it's a period of preparation and waiting so that we are ready to celebrate his second coming. The same season has multiple reference points. The two reference points are related. In the guide, the devotional guide for Advent, I wrote that it's like the front and the back cover of the exact same book. The second coming closes the story that began with the first coming. Front and back covers of the same book, the two comings of Jesus Christ. The second coming completes what he began at the first coming. This is significant. It's the historicity, and what I mean by that is it's not a myth or a fable. It's the his- historicity of the first coming that assures us that the second coming will happen in history. The second coming's not just a pipe dream, it's not just a myth pie-in-the-sky hopes, and you say, how do I know that? And you go, because the first coming happened in history. The two go together. The two are linked to one another. The first one shows that the second one is necessarily going to come. When you say, well, how does it do that? And this is the point. If God was willing to become man, he is certainly willing to finish the job he began. These two things are linked together. The one hinges on the other. If God was willing to become man, He is absolutely committed to finishing the work that he began. By the way, there is a personal application for each of us in that thought. One that's deeply reassuring. If God was willing to begin a work in you, if God was willing to begin a work in me, then we can say he must be committed to finishing it. He's not going to leave off halfway and abandon us. There's something reassuring in realizing that there is a back cover to this book that began at the first cover. We can step back and say that for the Jews, all of their history was an advent waiting for the birth of the Messiah. But for us, all of our history is an advent waiting for the return of the Messiah. This is what the season is designed to teach us. As we wait to celebrate the first, we are learning to wait for the second. This is what we're learning in this moment. And because of this focus on his return, this advent that we're in as we wait for him to come back, the lectionary offers us passages like Matthew 24. Passages that refer to him coming back again. That's why we read them during this time. That's my introduction. Y'all are like, oh, good night, what are we in for? Don't worry. I want to turn back to Matthew 24. There's a reality that undergirds it. And the reality that undergirds it is the thing that I want to pull out to tease out today. There's a reality that undergirds all this talk about Christmas, all this talk about the Jews waiting for the Messiah, all this talk about our waiting for his return. There's a reality undergirding all of that. And the reality undergirding it is that Jesus is on the move. Jesus is on the move. He's doing something. He's planning something. He's liable to burst into the scene at any given moment. The reality that undergirds all this talk about his return and his waiting is that he's doing something, plotting something, planning something, and he could burst in at any moment. Even now, behind the scenes, things are occurring. As I thought about this reality that undergirds these prophecies and chapters, I was reminded of C.S. Lewis's depiction of Aslan. He was so deeply sensitive to the great themes of the Bible, and he captured this beautifully. Think about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. There's constantly this whisper, this rumor that Aslan is on the move. Aslan is coming. And you say, When will he show? And you go, I don't know, but I can tell. He's on the move. There's something happened. You even start to see signs at moments. Wait a minute is the snow melting. You see signs, Santa Claus shows up. There's hints and whispers and rumors that he could arrive at any moment, that he might burst into history, that everything would be different. There's this tension, this sense of eagerness and excitement. It's like the characters are quivering with expectation that at any given moment, he could be there. They're filled with that hopeful expectation, that joy-filled tension, that quivering excitement. Lewis was borrowing from the prophets. He didn't make that up. He was borrowing from Jesus himself where we find that tension and that hope that there's something afoot, that something's happening behind the scenes, that something may burst forth into our world at any moment. That even when we can't see it, Jesus is moving, something's happening. That idea, even when we can't see it, is key. Think about the enthronement coming. I told you all I had a purpose for bringing all that stuff up. Go back to Matthew, look at verse 30, excuse me, look at verse 29. This is referring to Jesus being enthroned in the heavens. And you see Jesus saying, The sun's going to be darkened. The moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. At the enthronement of Jesus, the whole universe trembled and shook. It's like those scenes in the line The Witch in the Wardrobe where those with discernment notice that the snow is melting. The blinded ignore it. They ignore the signs. But the universe is shaken at what's going behind the scenes. Jesus ascends into the presence of the Father and is given authority over all, and the universe quivers. The forces of evil run. There's strengthening that occurs amongst the faithful, that something is happening behind the scenes, something that could burst forth into our reality right now. There is more going on than we realize. It's like Jesus and the prophets before him are saying to us Be on the edge of your seats, be on the edge of your seats. Are you eager for this moment? There's more happening now than you know. And there's even more to come than you can expect. That may strike you as, well, that's a beautiful thought. The way C.S. Lewis captured it is exquisite. But that feels so far removed from our ordinary days, does it not? Not? It seems so far away when the brokenness of life is staring us right in the face. When we're face to face with all of the junk, with the suffering, with the broken relationships, we want to cry out, is he moving even now? Why doesn't he show up? Again, I think Lewis captured it so beautifully. When you envision all those poor creatures turned to stone, and you can imagine their families grieving and saying, where's Aslan?" Where's Aslan? Is he moving even now? We let the frustrations, we let the distractions of life begin to crowd out that joyful tension. That hopeful eagerness grows dim. It's forgotten. We may actually profess with our mouths that our hope is in the return of the Christ. We may say that our hope is in what he will do when he comes again. But if you actually look at the pattern of our daily life, it's pretty clear that we've set ourselves down to live with lower expectations. Our hope turns to what we can accomplish, to what we can secure for ourselves. The pleasures, the security, the status. We settle for less. I'm going to keep borrowing from Lewis, but he says we're like people who are too easily pleased, children content to make mud pies in the alley because we have no idea what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the beach. We settle down and we let that great hope grow dim because of the frustration and the difficulty, the mundanity, the tension of life. But all the while, Jesus is whispering, All the while he's whispering through the prophets, through the scriptures, through great storytellers like Lewis, all the while he's whispering. And he's saying to you, wake up. Wake up. Move to the edge of your seat. Something's coming. Something is afoot. The Lord is moving behind the scenes. He's working something in your life. It may take time before it comes out, but he's doing something. Be eager, be expectant. Adults, we have an awful lot to learn from children. Watch them the day before Christmas. Do you want to see what eager tension looks like? You want to see what sitting on the edge of your seat looks like? You want to see what expectation, hope for the future, knowing that something's coming, you see it in a child the day before Christmas, right? And Jesus is whispering to us. In this season, remember that tension. Remember that hope. Remember that eagerness that he is moving. That he will return. That he's moving behind the scenes right now. That the heavens shake at his presence. And that even when we can't see him, he's doing more than we expect. Even when you can't see him in your life. He's doing more than you expect. I want to close with that double idea that idea that more more is happening now than we realize, coupled with that idea that more is to come than we can ever expect. And I want to close by glancing at Isaiah 2 for just a second. It's a beautiful idea, this prophecy, this passage about the restoration of Jerusalem is exquisite. You see that in the latter days the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say come let us go to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and they shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Like most Jewish prophecy, there's multiple references here. On the one hand, the short, simple, easy, in the generation, almost, not really, 100 years, of the author, you see the restoration of Jerusalem after the exile. You see this idea that Israel will be restored, exalted, that people will go forth to it to learn from God. You see, though, that this prophecy also has a second reference point, the light life. Of Christ on earth. There's so much here that's beautiful. I'm going to avoid the temptation to get bogged down. But the exaltation of Zion, the lifting up above all things, and Jesus says of himself over and over in John, that I will be lifted up on the cross. You see this picture in Isaiah 2 of warfare being turned back into a garden, the Garden of Eden. Swords becoming gardening tools, And you see in the life of Christ, him in a garden rejecting warfare when Peter tries to fight for him. Over and over, this picture reverberates in the life of Jesus. You see people from the ends of the earth seeking him, saying, Let me come with you, a Sumerian woman, a Canaanite woman, a Roman centurion, A group of random Greeks in John 12. The ends of the earth coming into Zion to learn the law of God. Again, I want to avoid the temptation to go to the bottom of the well. But there is so much where we say this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. But like good Jewish prophecy, there's yet another reference point. Because this prophecy points to the age that we live in. The age of the church. Its final fulfillment is yet to come the return of Christ. But right now, this prophecy is being fulfilled. Right now, through the ministry of the church, the ends of the earth are seeing the law in the light of God. Think about what the roses are right now. Think about the work that the Beekmans and the Hammons do, that right now, the ends of the earth are seeing God's law in his light fulfilled. Right now, the church is working to end warfare. To return the world to the garden, the beauty that God created, you like me will go, Man, the church messes this up a lot. Yeah, we do. We're sinful people. And you may protest and say, Wait, we can't do these things. God does these things. And of course, that's the story of Pentecost. You see the fulfillment of this prophecy in Pentecost the ends of the earth coming to learn the law of God. My point in highlighting this is very simple more is happening now than you expect. When you invite a neighbor over in kindness, more is going on than you expect. It's not an ordinary event. Heavens are shaking when you show the, life, the love of Christ to those around you. And you say, I don't see it. But again, Jesus is on the move. Things are happening. We long for the day when we see it all come to full fruition. My point here is that more is happening than you know. Even now, Isaiah 2 is fulfilled when you exhibit the love of God to the people around you. Even now, the light of Christ is seen when you do simple things in his name in your world. More is happening than you expect. And yet, in the beauty of the story, more is to come. If there's one thing that I would say This morning, one thing that I would close with is very simply be in eager expectation. More is happening than you know, and more is yet to come. Amen.